Hey folks, and welcome to episode 200 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan, and here he's going to discuss Rebecca's role in the story of Jacob. He'll deal with the theme of good and bad wives and mothers throughout the Bible, as well as the multiple structures and substructures of this narrative. And towards the end of this talk, Jordan is going to show how the rituals in Leviticus actually relate to these events in Genesis. It is once again another fascinating talk from James Jordan, and we really hope that you're sharpened by it. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this episode, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Rebecca instructs Jacob in what she is telling him to do here in Genesis 27. I think we'll just begin the passage again and review. The passage starts in 2634, and reading from the Fox translation, when Esau was 40 years old, he took to wife Yehudit, daughter of Be'eri the Hittite, and Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a bitterness of spirit to Yitzchak and Rivkah, Isaac and Rebekah. Now that's where this starts. And that's also where it ends. The pericope ends with Esau going and getting a third wife because he sees his parents don't like his wives. Now we need to remember that we've got to read this in chronological context. This is 37 years before what happens next. After 37 years, when Isaac is blind and Esau and Jacob are 77 years old, he calls Esau in to bless him. So for 37 years, these two pagan women have been making life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. They've never changed. Esau has got children. By this time, his children are growing up bad because they have bad mothers, and the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, and the Bible teaches that throughout. You always have the name of the king, his mother, in the book of Kings. Always told who his mother is, and she has something to do with whether he was a good or a bad king. Rebecca has everything to do with Jacob's being a good son. These bad women... And this bad marriage contrasts with Isaac's marriage. But the first point is, just in reviewing, Isaac knows who the good son is. He knows that Esau is the wicked son. He knows that Esau's children are bad. He knows that if he gives the covenant to Esau, it's going to go right down the toilet with these wicked women and these wicked children. And he's determined to do it anyway. He's got 37 years of experience, plus 77 years of Esau's bad behavior, plus God's command that Jacob be the one to receive the inheritance. All of that he's going to disobey and try to deceive God. This narrative is usually seen as Jacob's attempt to deceive his father, which succeeds, but it's actually, primarily, Isaac's attempt to deceive God, which doesn't succeed. The other thing, and we didn't comment on this last time, and I want to bring it up this week as we try to build in our understanding. Esau was 40 years old when he got married. Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. Now that comparison is designed to set up a contrast. Isaac marries the heroic Rebecca, who is so filled with grace and energy that she can water 12 camels. Is it 12 or 10? Whichever it is, 
she gets the water for all of them. She goes down to the well, gets a pitcher full of water, hoists it up on her shoulder, waters these camels. When Professor Walkie was here, he was saying that these heroic actions on the part of the patriarchs caused many of the rabbis to say that the patriarchs were giants. Because we know there were giants in the ancient world. And, of course, they were mentioned in the Bible. And what ordinary person could do all these things? What ordinary man or woman could by herself or himself drag up enough water to water 12 thirsty camels, and yet she does it. Well, I don't think they were giants. They don't seem to have been when they came out of Egypt. But certainly that is the picture of somebody who is instant in her desire to be obedient and hospitable. Also, when she has a chance to come into the covenant household, she instantly wants to do it. We saw when we considered Genesis 24 that Rebecca is a new Abraham. And she needs to be a new Abraham because Isaac, who is supposed to be the new Abraham, is going to fall down on the job. And she is going to do what Abraham did. Abraham was very concerned that his son Isaac marry within the covenant. Now, Isaac is the son of Abraham, so Isaac should be very concerned that his sons marry within the covenant. But Isaac doesn't do that. Isaac fails to be a new Abraham. But Rebecca is a new Abraham. Rebecca is very concerned that her righteous son marry within the covenant. And at the end of this passage, this comes up. I might as well kill myself if Jacob, my other son, marries pagan women like these. If Jacob should take a wife from the Hittite women like these, why should I have life? In other words, what has my life been worth? For 77 years I've been the mother of the seed. I've tried to bring up this man to be a carrier of the messianic line if he marries a pagan woman and has half-breed wicked children what has my life been worth? that's her question so she's the new Abraham she's the one who takes responsibility to make sure her children the one that is responsive at least is blessed and gets a right marriage Isaac doesn't do it and so This contrast between Esau and his crummy wives, Isaac and his wonderful wife, is part of what's setting up this story. And once again, I don't think there is any way you can really read this story carefully and think that Rebecca is in sin in this passage, regardless of the tradition. Sorry who disagrees. But Rebecca is the hero in this passage. She offers to give her life for the covenant, as we'll see. So that sets things up. This contrast in these marriages, Esau and his wicked wives, Isaac and his good wife, Esau's wives and his children would destroy the covenant. Isaac wants to destroy the covenant. Only Rebekah, the new Abraham, is faithful to the covenant, and she's going to see to it that the covenant continues with the ones that God has commanded should inherit it. Now the second panel in this passage is... Isaac's bringing Esau to himself. And we've considered this at length. I'll just review it. Chapter 27, verses 1 to 4. Now when Yitzchak was old, and his eyes had become too dim for seeing, and he called Esau his elder son, and he said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. And he said, And now behold, I have grown old, And I do not know the day of my death. So now pick up your weapons, your hanging quiver and your bow, and go into the field and hunt me down some hunted game and make me a delicacy such as I love, 
and bring it to me, and I will eat it, that I may give you my own blessing before I die. Isaac is old, he's blind. Blindness here is a symbol of his inability to know good and evil, his intention to call evil good and good evil, his intention to pass judgment the wrong way. Remember that in Genesis 1, God saw what he had made and it was good. So seeing has to do with passing judgment of good and evil. Adam and Eve, being newborn babies, were not mature enough to pass judgment of good and evil. But knowledge of good and evil is said to be the possession of kings and wise men. If Adam and Eve had been patient, they would have been given to either the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and would have had the wise ability to pass sound judgment. Isaac is an old guy. He is 60 when his children were born, 77. He's 137 years old now. He ought to have plenty enough wisdom to be able to pass judgment of good and evil. But his eyes are dim symbolically because of his wickedness. He has lost the ability to discern good and evil. He intends to call evil good and good evil. He intends to pass judgment exactly the opposite of what God has commanded. So, he does all this sneaky stuff. He sneaks around. He doesn't call all of his sons together to distribute blessings, which is what he should have done, which is what we see Jacob do. No, he just calls Esau. He calls him on the sly. He doesn't tell his wife about it. She just happens to overhear it. And he's really trying to sneak around and do this behind God's back. And God is the one who catches up with him through his agent, who is Rebecca. He calls Esau... My son, we studied all this, my son, your son stuff. The son, word son occurs 24 times in this passage. The word father occurs 24 times. There's no way those things could be accidental. And he says, bring me down some of your food and make me a delicacy such as I love. We saw last time the word delicacy only occurs here six times and twice in Proverbs where it says, when you go before a king, put a knife to your throat and don't eat his delicacies because it's deceptive. A delicacy is a deceptive food that can seduce you. As it seduced Eve in the garden, she saw that the food was pretty to look at and was tasty and that it had something to do with good and evil and she was tricked into eating it. So this is the food of trickery and deception. And Isaac has been deceived. After 77 years of age, let's say Esau became a hunter at 15 or 17, we've got 60 years of him becoming addicted to this food. Spicy game. Lions and tigers or whatever it is he wants to eat. Deer or gazelle. Go get me some. And he eats Esau's food. He becomes Esau. We eat Jesus and we become part of the body of Christ. So if you eat Esau's food, you become part of Esau. Isaac is becoming Esau here. He has become Esau. He's identified with him. And he is now the enemy of the covenant. And he intends to steal the covenant. So Isaac sends Esau out to get him the kind of food he loves so that I can give you this blessing before I die. And we saw that the death theme is an important theme in this passage. Isaac thinks he's going to die. In reality, he's got 43 more years to live. He's going to live to be 180. 43 years to live in this blindness. Not a happy future for Isaac. At the end of the passage, we saw as an inclusio, Rebecca says, why should I live? I might as well die. At the end of the passage, Esau is intending to kill Jacob. And right here at the beginning, Isaac intends to kill Jacob, basically. Jacob is the one who's supposed to inherit. Jacob has bargained with Esau and has gotten the inheritance perfectly legal bargain. It says Esau despised his birthright. 
not Jacob tricked Esau. Nothing wrong with what Jacob did. And now, Isaac intends to kill it all for him. He intends to cut him off. And we see this in that Isaac is forced to give Esau the blessing he intended to give to Jacob. And that blessing is, Away from the fat of the earth is your dwelling place. Away from the dew of the heavens above. You will live by your sword. You will be a slave to your brother. That is what he intended to give to Jacob. He intended to cut him off from the promised land, away from the promised land. And he intended to make him a slave. Now that's equivalent to killing him. So this death theme is important. Isaac says, I'm about to die. I think I'll kill Jacob before I die and give everything to Esau. Rebekah says, at the end Esau is going to kill Jacob. Now he's going to be like his father and kill Jacob. Rebekah says, I'm going to die if this doesn't stop happening. So everything is in a death and resurrection scenario here. And what, in a larger sense, we'll have to come back to this, I'm sure. This is the death of the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He builds the whole thing up. He gives it all to Isaac. And now it's all going to die and have to come to life again. So the whole death, resurrection theme is here. And it all, just as the sacrifice of Isaac was death and resurrection of the covenant, so this is here. That's why it's going to be important when Rebecca says, let your curse be on me. If somebody has to die, let it be me. Her death makes possible this resurrection. And there's a resurrection on the other side of it where Jacob goes out and he meets God and has a ladder to heaven. And you resurrect, you go up to heaven. So everything dies because of the sins of Isaac. And everything has to die and come back to life again in Jacob. God gives the covenant, men ruin the covenant, it dies, and God brings it to life again. And this is a death passage here. So the passage has a number of deep structures in it. One is the husband and the wife, good wife, bad wife, good husband, bad husband. Well, two bad husbands here, Esau and Isaac. It's got another substructure, which is death and resurrection. It's got another one, which is sacrificial ritual, which we've commented on and we'll comment on again. So that's where we are. That's the review. Isaac says, bring this food. I want to give you my blessing before I die. My blessing, he says. Now we come to verses 5 to 17. And I'll read it, and then we'll do what we can in the time that remains. And Rivkah was listening as Yitzchak spoke to Esav, his son. And Esav went off into the fields to hunt down hunted game to bring. And Rivkah said to Yaakov, her son, saying, Behold, I was listening as your father spoke to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me some honey game, and make me a delicacy, and I will eat it, and I will give you blessing before Yahweh before my death. She changes it from my blessing to blessing before Yahweh. And now, my son, listen to my voice to what I command you. Pray go to the flock. And bring me two fine goats from there, and I will make them into a delicacy for your father, such as he loves. And you bring it to your father, and he will eat, so that he may give you blessing before his death. Jaco said to Rivkah, his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and then I will be a trickster in his eyes. And I will bring upon myself... A curse and not a blessing. 
And his mother said to him, Let your curse, your repudiation be on me, my son. Only listen to my voice and go and take them for me. And he went and he took and he brought them to his mother. And his mother made a delicacy such as his father loved. And Rivkah then took the garments of Esau, her elder son, the choicest ones that were with her in the house. And she clothed Yaakov, her younger son. And with the skins of the goat kids, she clothed his hands and the smooth parts of his neck. And she placed the delicacy and the bread that she had made in the hand of Yaakov, her son. Well, that's what Rebecca does. Now, the outline, the structure here, puts the curse at the center. If you look at it on page 39, the transition statement is that she overhears what's happening and Esau departs. And then we move from speaking to action here. Just as we will in the worship service, we'll have a sermon and then we'll do something. Word and deed. Rebecca speaks of her plan. Jacob speaks an objection. Rebecca takes any curse on herself. Jacob acts on the plan. Rebecca acts on the plan. That's the structure. That's where this is moving. And the way it moves and what's at the center of it, and the transition is in the center as always. The transition is Rebecca's taking the curse on herself. Jacob says, I might be cursed. This isn't going to work. She does what's necessary to change everything and make it work. And this is really, in a sense, the heart of the entire passage. That's one heart of the passage. The other one is when Isaac trembles with a great trembling and realizes that he's been caught out and defeated. These are the two pivots in this passage and the one in this particular section. Now it's interesting, and we have to just at least glance at the fact that Rebecca repeats Isaac's plan but alters it. And this is how it would have been heard if you're reading it out loud, especially in the synagogue, and you could hear it in Hebrew and hear more of the music of it than we can do in English, but... Go and bring some honey game, make a delicacy, I will eat it, give my blessing before I die. She repeats it. He said, bring some honey game, make a delicacy, and I will eat and give Yahweh's blessing before my death, she says. And then she says, go and bring two goat kids, I'll make a delicacy, he will eat it, he will give a blessing before his death. That repetition, that's highly memnonic, this is... Literature to be read out loud, not to be read silently, and uh, to be heard. So that's what you would hear. And you'd hear that contrast between Isaac saying, this is my blessing, I own it, and I can give it to whom I want. And Rebecca's statement, this is Yahweh's blessing, and it happens, unfortunately, that your father is the one who is supposed to pass it on, so we've got to make sure he gives it to the right person. Now, what can we say? In terms of our notes, Isaac, first of all, puts himself in God's place. Note, Isaac speaks of his blessing, while faithful Rebekah speaks of Yahweh's blessing. The second thing to notice here is the narrative copies the ritual of sacrifice. Isaac wants to be propitiated by a food offering before he gives the blessing. Isaac smells his son before giving the blessing. We've talked about this before, but I'll review it. You bring a sacrifice to the Lord... If Isaac had done this the right way, he would have gathered his whole family together, gone to an altar, and made a food offering to the Lord. And he would have taken an animal, and he would have killed it, and he would have prepared it on the fire, and the Lord would have smelled it, and God would have given his blessing, and Isaac would have given the blessing to Jacob, who God had said was to receive it. 
But Isaac takes it all to himself. He says, kill an animal, cook it as food, I'll eat it, then I'll bless you. And you even have the fact that in the sacrifice, the smoke goes up to God and God says, God smells it as a sweet savor. Isaac leans forward and smells his son before giving the blessing. So there's definitely a substructure of the sacrificial ritual here, which I'll try to point out more about in a few minutes. The sacrifice has to be slain. Jacob fears that he will be slain in the sense of being repudiated and cast out when he draws near. Verse 13, well, 12, Perhaps I will bring on myself a curse and not a blessing. His mother said, Your curse be on me. There are several words for curse in the Hebrew Bible. This is not the word from Genesis 3. This word means to repudiate or dishonor. To repudiate or dishonor. Perhaps I'll be repudiated. Perhaps he'll cut me off. And she says, if anybody's to be repudiated or cut off, let it be me. Now what did Jesus go through on the cross? He was cut off, repudiated. That's what Rebecca offers to do here. What actually happens in this story is, and this sets something up, and I've already mentioned it, Isaac intended to do exactly that to Jacob. Away from the fat of the earth must be your dwelling place. Away from the dew of the heavens. He intended to cut him off and repudiate. And all he's got left to do is say that to Esau instead of to Jacob. So actually what happens is, because of Rebekah's action, Jacob doesn't get cursed, he gets blessed instead. Isaac did intend to curse him. Not because he was going to trick him, but just because he was Jacob. I mean, we didn't crucify Jesus because we thought he was a sinner. We crucified him because he was righteous. Isaac doesn't like Jacob because Jacob is a righteous man. We told that at the beginning of the narrative. Jacob is a perfect man. Isaac doesn't like him. Isaac wants to curse him. Isaac intends to curse him. He intends to cut him off, to repudiate him, to separate him. Curse, kalal, to dishonor him. Rebecca says, let it come on me instead. Isaac does not succeed in doing it. Rebecca is ready to die as his substitute. She's ready to die as Jacob's substitute, and really also for Isaac. Rebecca dies so that Jacob can live, so that he can draw near. So Rebecca is the sacrifice. And again, if you compare it to the sacrificial ritual and think about the parallels, in the ritual, the animal is slain, its meat is cooked, and then it's smelled. Rebecca prepares the food. It represents her. Jacob doesn't prepare the food. That's a contrast. Isaac tells Esau, Esau, go kill an animal. You cook it and spice it up and bring it to me. What happens is Jacob goes and kills an animal. Rebecca cooks it and spices it up and sends it by Jacob. The food represents her. The two kids are her sons her whole life, and it represents her. So the supplicant, who is Jacob, draws near on the basis of the death food and smell of the substitute, who is Rebecca. She prepared this food. It smells like her. It's her food, representing her death. And on the basis of that, Jacob draws near. Now you want to know why Rebecca isn't given a burial plot in the book of Genesis. I think this is why. She dies right here in every way that matters. 
she offers herself as a substitute sacrifice, and that's her righteousness. The two kids represent her as a mother of the seeds. The mother lays down her life for the seeds so the Messiah may come. This is a form of the multiplied tribulation of childbearing in Genesis 3. Remember in Genesis 3 it says, The mother of the seed will, through tribulation, have children. We expand that out to all women, which is true enough, but actually it's more specific. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So the mother of the seed is who's in view here. To the woman he said, I will multiply... Multiplying, I will multiply the pain in your childbearing. With pains you will bear children. So, who in particular, I guess having children would have been pleasant experience if we hadn't fallen into sin, but now it's always unpleasant and women die from it and there's always trauma and difficulty of various sorts involved. The Bible expresses that from the laws of uncleanness, which put uncleanness on childbearing and things associated with it everything else. There are all different kinds of trauma associated with it, but it's particularly the mother of the seed that's in focus. And that spreads to all women in a sense. Rebecca is the mother of the seed here. So, what she undergoes, what she's been putting up with for 77 years, and now the suffering that she's going to experience for the rest of her life, which is going to be even more intense, that's all the pain of childbearing. See, what Rebecca is going to have to live with is that the son that she loves is going to leave and she'll never see him again. She says at the end of this passage, you remember this, I'm sure, she says to Jacob, Arise, my son, and flee to Levon, my brother, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury is turned away, and then I will send and have you taken from there. Well, how long is he gone? Twenty years. When he comes back, She's already dead. Because Esau's hatred never abated. So, she is going to suffer as the mother of the seed, but she's going to suffer for the sake of the kingdom, and not because of any sin on her part. God honors and protects Rebekah. If Isaac had reversed his blessing and cursed Jacob, it would have fallen on Rebekah. See, that's what would have happened. If Isaac had said, hey, I was tricked here. I'm going to give this blessing to Esau anyway. You boys come back in here. Esau, you get the blessing. Jacob, you get the curse. That would have flowed right back up to Rebekah. But Isaac's curse doesn't come on Rebekah. No curse comes on her. Rather, the privilege of martyrdom comes on her. They both involve suffering. A martyrdom is positive suffering. And Rebekah is a martyr. So is Jacob. Jacob says at the end of his life, few and evil have been the days of my sojourn. I had to fight with my brother and my father for 77 years. I had to fight with Laban for 20 more years. And after I got out of there, my sons murdered all these people in Shechem. And so everybody in the promised land thought that I was a monster. And then I lost my favorite son down to Egypt. My life has just been a living hell, but it's been martyrdom, not curse. Positive suffering, not negative suffering. That's Rebecca. That's what will happen to her. And she takes it willingly for the sake of the kingdom. It's the same Rebecca we've had right along. So God honors her, and she doesn't get any curse from Isaac or anybody else. She does continue to be a martyr. Now, an emphasis here. In verses 8 and 13, on Rebecca's voice and her commands, My son, listen to my voice to what I command you. 
His mother said, listen to my voice and go. The way this is written, we wouldn't have to say this. Emphasis on this, listen to my voice. And you don't talk that way. My son, listen to my voice. Neither did they in the ancient world. But this is formal language here, and it stands in contrast to Isaac's formal language to Esau. Pray, do this, and so forth. And it also indicates that she's taking charge. She's the vice president. Because the president has become a fool, she has to take over. We've already discussed the curse here in verse 12. It means repudiation of making light. It's not the word for separate or banish, although these come close because Jacob is, in a sense, a banishment is, as I pointed out, being cut off is part of what's involved here. Garments of Esau. Rebecca then took garments of Esau, her elder son, the choicest ones that are in her house, and clothed Jacob, her younger son. That's part of the substitution. Two kids are slain. Jacob represents both sons. The two kids are slain and mixed together in the stew. See, you've got to think physically and realistically. What happens here? We've got two goats, Jacob and Esau. A stew is made out of both of them mixed together so that they become each other. That's what she does. That's why we have two goats here. And since two goats are slain, Jacob represents both. It's his stew and it involves both. And then as I pointed out to you, Jacob's food is spiced to smell like Esau's and Jacob is spiced to smell like Esau. So Isaac smells Esau. He smells Esau's food. He smells Esau's body. But it's really Rebekah's food and Jacob's body underneath. Finally, we should comment on this covering of skins. I pointed out to you that the word goat is... With the skins of goat kids, the same one, same skins. Clothes his hands from the smooth parts of his neck. The animal is slain to provide these. She doesn't just get skins from anywhere. It's the same goat kids. We're told that specifically. The same ones. The kids that represent Jacob and Esau. And, of course, in Genesis 3.21, it says God slew animals and clothed them in skins. It's the same word. And in the Day of Covering or Day of Atonement ritual in Leviticus 16, Aaron puts on his woolen garments after killing the goat there in that ritual. And if you've been with us, you know why I'm saying that, because that is the two-goat ritual. And I'm going to run through that now so that it's on the tape and so that you have it as the implication of this. These historical narratives in Genesis are part of the background or foundation for the sacrificial system in Exodus and Leviticus. What the sacrifices do is they bring all the events of the covenant back and reapply them. So that Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and all of them are brought back and reapplied. Which is exactly what the Lord's Supper does. The Lord's Supper brings back and reapplies what Jesus did. His incarnation, his death on the cross, his resurrection. All of that is brought back, dramatized by breaking bread and drinking wine. And then it's reapplied. What the sacrificial system in Leviticus does 
is it takes the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and it takes the story of the Exodus, and it symbolically dramatizes them and reapplies them. So that when people fall into sin, they fall out of the covenant. They get back into the covenant by eating or participating in that history again. It's like you fall out of that history and you get put back into history. So if you repudiated being an American and then you came back to America and became an American again, you'd be coming back into the American history. Well, that's what the covenant is. You fall away from the covenant. That's not your history anymore. If you repent, you get back into that history, and now that's your history again, and all the benefits of it are yours. Everything that Abraham did and everything that Jacob did or was, everything that Joseph did or was, everything that Jesus was is given back to you when you repent and come back into the covenant. So these rituals in Leviticus have a lot to do with the events in Genesis, and I wanted to sketch that out for you here. But we're not going to spend much more time on that theme. We'll move on. But the first thing to think about in terms of understanding this is that Aaron was the firstborn son. Aaron is older than Moses. How much older? Aaron's three years older than Moses. If he is only three years older than Moses, then who was the oldest? Obviously, Miriam was. I mean, if she was old enough to follow the basket as it floated down the river, she must have been more than three years old. So we know that the order was Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. But Aaron is the firstborn son. So the Passover lamb represents him. The Passover lamb is taken by God for the firstborn sons, and that includes Aaron. Well, think back in terms of the narratives that parallels Isaac's being represented by the ram in his childhood. Isaac is the official firstborn son of Abraham because Ishmael has been sent out. So Isaac is now the firstborn son. He's going to be killed by the angel of death. But the angel passes him by because there's a ram that's a substitute. The result is Isaac becomes God's son, and he's not Abraham's son anymore. That's one of the main meanings of Genesis 22 is we have to give our sons up and let God be their father and not keep clinging on to them and trying to run their lives. Abraham does that. Same thing happens to Aaron. Aaron is now God's son because he's adopted, as well as all the Levites who substitute for the firstborn. Now, second of all, Aaron is given a job of being a father to Israel and offering them to God at the day of covering. Leviticus 23, 27-29 speaks of this. I'm going to read it. Leviticus 23, 27-29. Mark, on the tenth after this seventh new moon is the day of atonement. A proclamation of holiness shall be for you. You are to afflict your souls. You are to bring near a food offering to Yahweh. Any kind of work you shall not do on that same day. For it is the day of covering, to effect covering for you before the presence of Yahweh your God. Indeed, if any person does not afflict his soul on that day, he is to be cut off from his people. So, at the same time that the goats are being sacrificed, the people have to afflict their souls. Remember, Passover is in the first month that the animal dies alone. The church does not participate in the death of the Passover lamb. It is apart from us. 
The church is formed at Pentecost, and when you get to the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles, the church does participate in the death of those goats. We saw that in the book of Revelation, where the martyrs in Revelation are now participating in the death of Jesus. The Day of Atonement, Israel afflicts their souls. They participate in the death. First of all, Jesus dies for us when we're still sinners, and we have no interest in Him. Then He forms us up and gives us the privilege of suffering with Him so that every Christian, when he dies, dies as a martyr. Whether you die on the mission field or in your bed, you're being poured out as a drink offering, and your death counts for something. So, Aaron is now supposed to gather the entire nation together and as their father, sacrifice them. So they afflict their souls. This is what Isaac doesn't do. Isaac's supposed to gather his sons together and offer them to God. As Aaron gathers all of Israel together and offers them to God. Isaac doesn't do it. Rebekah does it. Rebekah takes two goats for the two sons and offers them and offers herself. She does what Isaac didn't do. Actually, Rebekah does what Aaron is supposed to do. She acts as a high priest in his family on this occasion. Third of all, Aaron takes two goats. In the context of Leviticus 16 is the death of his two sons, which have been replaced by two other sons. Now, this is the closest connection, is the two goats here. And we've talked about that before. Aaron's two goats represent the righteous and the wicked within Israel, Jacob and Esau. Nadab and Abihu is two Esau's sons. Ithamar and Eliezer is two Jacob's sons. Two communities. Rebekah does the same. One goat is killed and its blood is displayed. And then the other goat is banished into the wilderness. Now that's what happens in the Jacob narrative as well. One goat will be killed and its blood is displayed. Then the other goat is banished. The next thing that happens in the ritual, and if you want to study this, you're just going to have to go home and look at Leviticus 16 because we don't have time to read the whole passage and comment on it. But if you remember the ritual, Aaron brings the two goats near. He takes the one goat, he kills it, displays its blood on the altars. In front of the Ark of the Covenant, which is an altar, and on the horns or mountaintops of the altar of incense, and out at the base of the altar of sacrifice, so that the blood opens the door from heaven to earth. He doesn't do anything else with that goat. Now it's killed, it's skinned, its blood has been displayed, but it hasn't been put on the fire. Then he takes the other goat, the scapegoat, lays hands on it and sends it out into the wilderness. He banishes it and cuts it off from the people. Having done that, Aaron then puts back on his woolen garments. Right now he's just been wearing linen, which is plants. Then he puts back on wool, which is skins, made from the skins of sheep and goats. Aaron puts back on his woolen garments. Parallel to this, Jacob puts on his goat skins. Then Aaron offers the flesh of the first goat, the goat that was killed and had his blood put out. Now he cuts it into his pieces, puts it on the fire, and it ascends to God as a food for God. And just in the same way, Jacob brings the meal to Isaac because Isaac is the one who's pretending to be God on this occasion. Isaac demands that he be treated as God. So in the parallel event, Jacob brings the meal to Isaac. 
The smoke of the flesh ascends to God and says God smells it and it's a sweet savor. That's what you have always in Leviticus. Now what happens is Jacob is forced out like the scapegoat, but that's only superficial because he encounters God's ladder to ascension in heaven, to heaven on his way. And we'll get to that, of course. He gets out in the wilderness as he leaves. He encounters God. He sees the ladder to heaven. That is the same thing as the smoke going up to the throne. And so Jacob is actually being sent to God. He's being sent out of Isaac's household, which is okay because Isaac is in sin. And being sent away from this sinful household, he actually is being sent to God. And so Jacob is the righteous goat. It's only superficially that he looks like the scapegoat. He's actually being sent out to God, which is what the good goat does. Esau is like the scapegoat. He's banished, even though he remains at home, physically, he's actually cut off and is the same as the Azazel goat that's sent out into the wilderness and cut off because the blessing that comes on him is away from the fat of the earth must be your dwelling place. He's cut off. Now, that's not the end of the ritual of the year. Following the day of covering is the feast of ingathering, which speaks of the gospels going to the nations and they're joining the people of God. Remember at the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Tabernacles, you have 70 bulls for the 70 nations of the world. So the progression is Passover, the animal dies apart from the church. On the basis of that, the church is formed into two loaves of bread on Pentecost. The church suffers in union with Christ on the Day of Atonement when we afflict our souls. And the Gospel goes to all the nations of the world and the Gentiles convert. That's the progression in the year, from the first month to the seventh month. It's also the progression in Genesis. Isaac's ram dies apart from him. We come out forward. A community is formed, even though it's a community that has some good people in it and some bad people in it. We get to the Day of Atonement, which is the chapter that we're looking at here. Sacrifice is offered, and people suffer in union with the sacrifice as Rebekah does, and Jacob does. They become martyrs. Then, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and that's the Joseph story. It also happens in a preliminary way. Jacob leaves and goes to Laban, who eventually makes a covenant with him, but in terms of the whole progression of Genesis, the gospel goes to the Gentiles with Joseph, and the entire world comes to Joseph to eat bread. So that progression, is the narrative progression in Genesis, is microchronically recapitulated in the ritual of the year in Israel. Finally, you want to think about this. I hope these notes are enough. Just as the one male sheep or goat of Passover becomes the two he-goats the day of covering, the two goats become the seventy bulls of the feast of ingathering. Jacob's one son becomes Isaac's two sons. And then Jacob's nation of sons, which have seventy elders, and which take the gospel to the world as the book of Genesis comes to an end. So I wanted to tie off the sacrificial and ritual aspects of this passage. These people weren't thinking about this at the time. I think that they were more symbolically aware than we were. I am almost sure that Rebecca's decision to select two goats and blend them together was in her mind related to her two sons and what she's offering to her husband and going through with his bad game, his bad play acting here. She's offering her sons and herself. But 
They didn't know that there was going to be some elaborate ritual in the book of Leviticus that would pick this up. Rather, you have historical events from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob to Joseph, which are then encapsulated in this ritual. And just as a small model, the human body is a microcosm of the universe, so a ritual is a microcron, a small time encapsulation of larger events. Just as when we go through the ritual of the Lord's Supper, we're symbolically doing something that relates to Jesus' life, and then that's given to us. So these rituals in Leviticus symbolically relate to the history of the patriarchs, which is then given to them, so that their God becomes, the God of the patriarchs becomes the God of the people. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm